Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 14th. 2011. We are technically on the eve of the release of Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, and I have my copy. And uh, it reads really quick. I'll give you some details here in a second. In fact, the first hour is pretty much dedicated to the Rob Bell issue. And wow, there's a lot of issues. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said, and the latest crazy thing being published is the train wreck of a book. Oh, man. Written by Rob Bell, entitled "Love Wins." In fact, let me see if I can. Yeah, this is it. I've got it, and uh, I am not a fan of that hot red lipstick color thing. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not. But it's it's got a really really thick plastic uh, clear uh, plastic uh, cover, uh, 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 you know, dust cover on it. You can read this thing in about two hours. but then again, I'm kind of a fast reader, so um, you know, maybe for the slow reader, two and a half. I, you know, it's it's not a book that takes a long time to read. Um, and um, I kind of made a note of on the first pass through. I'm not going to spend. A, I, I didn't spend a lot of time making notes. I'm going to have to reread it and kind of suck up uh, the things that uh, you know. And you know, I, I wanted to experience the forest first. Is probably a better way of putting it. And after walking through the the forest of this, it's a, wow, this is, there's so much more than eschatological problems with this book. There's a Christological problem in this book. Um, There's a problem regarding the nature of God, and I think somebody can make the case that that, uh, this is one of the most explicit times that I've seen Bell in any of the books that I've read of his, that where he... um, it sounds like he's teaching pantheism, and there's some stuff in here that just makes you want to go, you "What?" <laughs> I mean, so we'll we'll take the we're gonna take our time. Here's the deal, all right. I'm not gonna sit here and say, "Well, you know, Rob Bell, you know, he's he's a wascally character because he he was once spotted with uh, somebody who's dicey theologically." You know, we're. <laughs> No, we're going to actually take the time to, you know, examine his ideas, compare what he's saying in the name of God to the word of God to see if it's true. And so, what we're going to do today, I don't even know how to there's so much 
to talk about. I, 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 I even doubt my own outline here that I wanted to talk about. But uh, over the weekend at Mars, uh, Mars Hill Bible Church, in, in, yesterday, there was an invitation-only event, and only certain types of members of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids were invited to attend this event where Rob Bell explained himself. Now, I don't know if, uh, if video was actually allowed at Mars Hill Bible Church, but somebody bootlegged a video out of there and uh, posted it on YouTube. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start today by listening to Rob Bell from yesterday explaining to a select group of the members of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids uh, uh, some of the things that he does to you know kind of lay out his teaching and what it is that's going on in this book uh, there's plenty of of, the, of stuff for you to listen to from uh from that bootlegged video that was uh, leaked onto YouTube from Mars Hill not sure who who uh, recorded it but uh we'll go from there um I want to read then just a brief section from uh uh like pages 143 to 146 in the book where I think you can you can begin to make the case that uh, Rob Bell here is teaching a form of pantheism or panentheism. There's some language here and some concepts that he's teaching that are just flat out bizarre, um, and I want to share them with you. And uh, and then what I want to do is I want to spend time reading through Kevin DeYoung. He's a part of the Gospel Coalition. He's one of the uh, young. Restless and reformed guys. I, I'm not sure what makes him restless. Um, anyway, uh, he has a, a a very lengthy critique that he's written uh, about Rob Bell's new book that uh, I, I think is worth worth passing along in its entirety to you. Yeah. And so, you know, the service that I'm uh, doing to, for you guys today is basically taking the time to look at some of the better critiques that are written out there, pass them along to you. And then our sermon review, we're going to totally change gears. Uh, we're going to be listening to an Andy Stanley sermon uh, regarding money and finances. And the reason I picked this one is because, um, yeah, talk about major confusion of law and gospel and the, and the picture that it paints of God and his willingness to so-called, you know, kind of help you out. I mean... It's th- this is the epitome of the quid pro quo mentality regarding God that I think the New Testament clearly and soundly refutes and uh, speaks against as a false do- as a false gospel. So we're going to be listening to Andy Stanley take a look listen to uh, a uh, you know, one of the sermons in his uh, current sermon series entitled Balanced, and uh, I, I'm, I I think it should be entitled Unbalanced because it provides a very unbalanced uh, view of God and uh, what he's about. Very similar to the stuff we've heard Rick Warren saying lately about uh, uh, how God wants you to be blessable. But, you know, if you're not being blessed, it's it's your fault, not God's. It's because you just haven't done the right things, haven't prioritized correctly for God to bless you. So we'll be doing that in our sermon review in hour number two today. So lots and lots of things to do. Um and since we are talking about Rob Bell, that does require us to uh, play our Rob Bell update music. Here we go.
many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova in the sky. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova. A champagne supernova in the sky. All right. That's Oasis, and uh, what year? I forget. It's from the 90s. Anyway, I enjoyed that album when it first came out. But uh, that's our uh, update music for Rob Bell. Here is Rob Bell at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church speaking to, a, like I said, a select group of uh, members of his church and explaining his position and what's going on with this controversial book, Love Wins. Here we go. It would be important this morning uh, to just take some time before we get into the one sermon and ask Rob, um, help us as we... We enter into this time, we're going to be reading this book. Help us know why, for you, this book was so meaningful, that the time was now. Uh, what pieces of it just come from us and make this uh, kind of about the thing we hold? Help us, like, know and understand that. All right. Um, so good to see you. Um, where should I start? Uh, I begin with the conviction that God is love. Okay, now, he begins with the conviction God is love. Listen carefully to the words. I begin with the conviction that God is love. Now, he could have started in the scripture and said, the apostle John, eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ, revealed that God is love. But no, he's starting with his own convictions here. And the reason why is because, well, in First John, where the Apostle John makes such statements regarding Jesus and God being love and things of that nature, it's not a philosophically abstract love. And what you're going to hear from Rob Bell is a bunch of philosophical abstractions, but not biblical revelations. Listen carefully. And that we must start there. God is love. And that God sent Jesus to show us this love, give us this love, teach us how to live in this love, and how to share this love with a world that is lost and desperately needs this love. Okay, now notice, one of the contentions out there is is that uh, Rob Bell's understanding of the afterlife actually affects his presentation of the gospel. Tim Challies uh, was one of the guys who uh, made that point, and uh, well, that was one of the things we read last week. Well, here's Rob Bell explaining why Jesus came. I want you to listen again to what he says and see if you're hearing uh, that his his views regarding the afterlife, if there's not somehow affecting and you know, affecting change in his presentation of the gospel itself. Listen. God is love. And that we must start there. God is love. And that God sent Jesus to show us this love, give us this love, 
teach us how to live in this love and how to share this love with a world that is lost and desperately needs this love. Nothing mentioned about God loving the world so that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Nothing there about God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. We're just talking about love in some kind of philosophical abstraction. So, so I, I begin in a, in a very simple sort of place. And sometimes uh, the word radical, by the way, shares a root word with the word radish, and rad means like root. This is Rick Warren's <laughs> radicalist speech, okay. So something that is radical actually is simply something that has returned to its proper roots. Okay, now, this is important. Why is this important? Because Rob Bell here is making the claim that his book is taking us back to the proper roots of Christianity. That whatever it is that we're experiencing have been taught regarding Jesus, sins, death, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, faith in Christ, and salvation, and eternal life, and eternal damnation, that somehow that's not consistent with the rad, with the root of Christianity. That's why he said this. And the Christian story began with a joyous, euphoric announcement that God is love and God sent Jesus to show the world this love so this world would know this love. Um, hmm. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, I would have you remember, brothers, the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel in which you stand and which you, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to what's been preached, otherwise you believe in vain. And I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And he was buried and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Notice he's talking about God's love in abstraction and he's making claims about how, oh, the early church, it burst onto the seams with the scene with this euphoric understanding of this message that God is love. You know, um, the euphoric gospel, the thing that the, um, <clears throat> the apostles were really excited about was the message that Christ died for our sins. And they were doing what they were told to do by Jesus by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. But again, he's, he's speaking in abstractions here. Listen again. Here we go. The story began with a joyous, euphoric announcement that God is love, and God sent Jesus to show the world this love so this world would know this love. And sometimes the most radical thing is unbelievably simple, and it's actually a return to how things started so he's making the claim that what he's teaching in this book is consistent with how things started in the beginning of the church. That is his claim. Does it stand up under scrutiny is the question. Are you with me? Now, no. This love, uh, this love demands freedom. If you have love, you must have freedom. Okay, so now we're, now he's doing philosophy. If you must have love, there must be freedom. 
This is a philosophical argument, nothing to do with what God has revealed in his word. If you cannot choose, and if your will and ability to decide is co-opted or coerced in any way, then it is no longer love, it is something else. So this is basically, if you were to boil this argument down, a denial of the biblical doctrine of original sin. He doesn't believe that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins and sinners. Instead, apparently we're just misguided, but that's what really where this ends up, logically. And so love, the very nature of love, is it has to be chosen. Love always has freedom. That freedom has consequences. If you resist this love of God, if you reject it, if you turn the other way, there are very serious consequences. So this love... Yeah, but not eternal damnation. Yeah, I have the book. Love demands freedom. This freedom has all sorts of consequences. This love can be rejected. It can be resisted. It can be repulsed. It also creates all sorts of possibilities, which we have all experienced in our journey as followers of Jesus. This love creates all sorts of possibilities. I never thought that was possible. What's often behind... Now, I want to point out the fact so that you all know this. I did not put this video together, and there was just a cut there in the uh, in the video. So we he, we've segued to a different segment of Rob Bell's speech and i don't know where we are in the total context of it but i want to let you know that 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 whoever put this together did cut this up and you need to know where the cuts are people's questions doubts longings troubles confusion what i discovered again and again and again is the real question the question behind the question behind the question is generally what is god really like And my experience has been in talking to an extraordinary number of people across a vast spectrum is that lots of people have very distorted, destructive ideas about what God is like. Okay, now, by saying that, in his experience, many people have distorted and destructive ideas about what God is like. I think it is fair to say that he's claiming that he has clarity as to what God is like. And if you don't go in there and do some open-heart surgery... You get, for a lot of people, God is a slave driver. And it often gets masked in very spiritual terms, like we're working, we're serving, we're doing ministry. But actually, deep down, God is a slave driver. And if I pause just for a moment to rest, boom, I'm going to get it. For others, I don't know how many people I've met who have said, if I were to attend a church service, the roof would cave in or lightning bolts would spontaneously combust me. Well, that's a particular conception of the divine that is fairly toxic and destructive. Would you agree? So uh, the idea that God is wrathful towards sinners and punishes sin is a distorted view of God, Rob? Notice I, I don't see an open Bible as I'm watching him wax eloquent here. This is all philosophical opining based upon his philosophical questions. The mall is still standing, and we've been coming here for a while. And so my experience has been, you have to go, and Jesus, again and again and again and again, he goes back to people's fundamental conceptions of what God is like. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Oh, look at the flesh. 
flowers. Look at the birds. He's endlessly going back to, wait, 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 wait. What do you think God is like? Because if you think God is like that or that or that, you're, you're going to end up in all sorts of terrible, lonely, isolated places filled with despair and destruction. So Jesus the Theophilosopher, okay. And so this book comes for me out of a deep-seated desire to reclaim a God who is love and a God who is good. The good news, the good news, the good news is better than that. In my experience, a lot of people think they're carrying around the good news, and you peel it back just a couple layers and you find out, really, that's what God's like? That's not good news. The good news is better than that. Which is actually a chapter in the book, my little segue. Uh, yes, it is. Um, uh, so, so listen, listen to what he's doing here. The good news is better than that. The good news is better than that. So, uh, when you hear the word Christian in our culture, what words come to mind? When you think about larger cultures, specifically those who aren't Christians, who don't want anything to do with Jesus, when you say the word Christian, what is social? What are Christians known for? And I'm extremely passionate about God is love. God sent Jesus to give this world this love. And a Christians, what if when people said Christians, their first thing was, oh, those are the people who never stop talking about how God loves us and sent Jesus to give us this love. What if when they talked about Christians, Christians really were known for our love? What if all the other issues came second? It was first. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are the people who never stop enjoying and talking about and spreading and celebrating God's love. I believe we have a historic sort of generational moment to recapture the essence and the heartbeat of this life and this thing that we have all experienced so that the world might know this God that Jesus has introduced us to. That's why... I've written this book. Okay, that's um So that's Rob Bell's just a couple of snippets from what he said yesterday uh, at a uh, special invitation only for some of the select members of Mars Hill Bible Church. That is not everything he said in context, but already there's some things there that are worth noting. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to cover any of the ground that Kevin DeYoung covers in his critique of Rob Bell's book. But what I am going to do is uh, read a few pages for you uh, that kind of deals with some of the stuff that a lot of people are not yet quite talking about. Um, and uh, where do I want to start on this? Um, yeah, <clears throat> you know what I'll do is I will start at you know, 142. Okay. It was page 142. By the way, you can read this book so quickly. It is... It, uh, big font, generous margins. The, the text is not tightly wound together. I think they really spun this thing out. It, you know what? You, you ever see a, a kid in high school or college who has been told to turn in a five-page paper, and uh, they get they get kludgy with the you know, and at the end of it, they're done, and they they look at how many pages they have left, and they have three pages that they've written, and it's got to be five pages. So they start bumping up the the font size and. Short, making the margins smaller. I think he's done that. Anyway, Rob Bell asks the question on page 142. He says, and what does any of this have to do with Jesus? To answer that, another odd story. So he's here kind of telling us something about Jesus. He says, this one is an old one from early in the Bible, Exodus 17. Moses and the Israelites have left Egypt, and they're traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. 
It's not going well. The Israelites are thirsty. They can't find water. And they're angry with Moses, demanding to know why he brought them out of Egypt, only to make them and their children and their livestock die of thirst. Moses cries out to God, what am I to do with these people? God tells him to strike a rock with his staff in front of all of the people. He does. And out of the rock comes water. What an odd story. What an odd rock. The story goes on, telling us about their continuing journey, the obstacles in their way, God's patience with them, and Moses learning how hard it is to lead people and not lose your sanity in the process. But the rock, we don't hear any more about the rock until more than a thousand years later. In a letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to this story about this rock, saying that those who traveled out of Egypt drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That rock was Christ. Jesus? Jesus was the rock? How is that? Jesus is mentioned nowhere in the story. Moses strikes the rock. It provides water, and the people have something to drink. Story over. Paul, however, reads another story in the story, insisting that Christ was present in that moment and that Christ was providing the water they needed to survive, that Jesus was giving quenching, sustaining... Uh, hang on a second here. I want to make sure I didn't lose a word here. Uh, quenching uh, was, was giving, quenching, and sustaining. Jesus was, he says, the rock. I'm on page 144, just so you know. According to Paul, Jesus was there without anybody using his name, without anybody saying it was him, without anybody acknowledging just what or more precisely who it was. Paul's interpretation that Christ was present in the Exodus raises the question, where else has Christ been present? When else? With who else? How else? Now, these are interesting questions, and I'm going to pause right here for a second. The reason why, Jesus is the God of the Jews in human flesh, okay? So um, Jesus is the um, Yahweh of the Exodus. Jesus is the I Am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. How do I know that? Because Jesus is God, and God is the one who was speaking. So watch what he does with this here. He says, Paul finds Jesus there. In that rock, because Paul finds Jesus everywhere. Really, um, can you show me other examples where Paul finds Jesus everywhere? In the rocks, in the trees, in the birds, in the bees? Yeah, um, that's that's um, <clears throat> a very tortured uh, statement there. But I, I continue. To understand why, it's important to understand how the first Christians thought about the world, according to... Uh, Rob Bell, he's now going to tell us how the first Christians thought of the world. Says Bell, there is an energy in the world, a spark, an electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks call that spark zoe. The mystics call it spirit. And Obi-Wan called it the force. Um, Um... Wow, we've got a uh, uh, we've got a a problem here. Let me read that again. There is an energy in the world, a spark, an electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks call it Zoe. The mystics call it spirit, and Obi Wan calls it the Force. 
How does the sun give off that much energy and yet still regenerate itself at the same time? How do bees know to take that pollen from that flower over there and put it over here in this one? Why does my lawn have brown patches where I can't get the grass to grow while five feet away grass grows through the cracks in the concrete in the driveway? Grass, much like the grass I wish would grow in those brown patches. The energy, the spark, and the electricity that pulses through all of creation sustains it, fuels it, and keeps it going, growing, evolving, reproducing, making more. In many traditions, this energy is understood to be impersonal. Much like the Force in Star Wars, it has no name or face or personality. It's assumed to be indifferent to us. Our joy, meaning, and happiness are simply irrelevant. It does its thing. We do ours. That is not, however, how things are explained in the creation poem that begins in the Bible. In this poem, the energy that gives life to everything is called the Word of God, and it is for us. God speaks, and it happens. God says it, and it comes into being. Before it's chaotic and empty and dark, but then God speaks into the dark. Disorder, radiant, pulsating life with all of its wonder and diversity and creativity. Order out of chaos, light and light out of darkness and emptiness. Here's where the claims of the first Christians come in. They believe that at a specific moment in the history of the world... That life-giving word of God took on flesh and blood. Jesus, they affirmed, was that word, that divine life-giving energy that brought the universe into existence. The word that gave life to everything and continues to give life to everything they insisted had been revealed in its fullness. John begins his gospel by claiming that through Jesus all things were made. It is written in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the one through whom all also, God made the universe. In Colossians 1, he is before all things. In Ephesians 4, he's the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. In order to fill the whole universe, in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Christ, the one through whom all things came, through whom we live. This is an astounding claim and one that causes many to get off the bus at the nearest stop. Two out there, two mythic pre-modern superstitious to be taken seriously in our modern world haven't we evolved past such nonsense god became a man it's a common protest and it's understandable it's the same at the same time unavoidable it's the heart of the sto- of the jesus story if you find yourself checking out at this point finding it hard to swallow that jesus as a divine part remember that there are ultimate ultimately issues that ask the kind of universe we believe we're living in is it closed or open? Is it limited? What can we conceive and of and understand? Are there realities beyond the human mind? Are the ultimate? Or, uh, are we the ultimate arbit, uh, orbiter of what can and cannot exist? Or is the universe open, wondrous, unexpected, and far beyond anything that we can comprehend? Are you opened or are you closed? The insistence of the first Christians was that when you saw Jesus, the first century Jewish rabbi who taught and healed and called disciples and challenged the authorities to the point of death, you were seeing the divine in skin and bones, the word of flesh and blood. Jesus then wasn't a new idea. Jesus wasn't something God cooked up at the last minute to try to rescue us from what happened when we were given the freedom to truly make a mess of things. Jesus 
For these first Christians was the ultimate exposing of what God has been up to all along. This is, of course, a mystery, which is exactly the word they use for it. Ephesians 1, Paul writes that it is a mystery God has made known to us according to his good pleasure. What a great word there, pleasure. This mystery begins with God's pleasure, and this pleasure comes from God's purpose, which is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Unity to all things. God is putting the world back together and God is doing this through Jesus. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. The use of the word Gentiles is significant because for many of Paul's Jewish tribe, whatever God was doing in the world, world God was doing through and for them, their tribe, their people, their faith, the one who believed and lived like them, us, not them, we, not you, Paul. But Paul's insistence here is that What God is doing in Christ is for everybody, every nation, every ethnic group, every tribe. Paul uses the expansive word Gentiles, a first century way of saying everybody else. Something hidden that has now been being revealed. Something God has been up to all along that is now being made known. It's a mystery that Paul in Romans 11 doesn't that Paul in Romans 11 doesn't want us to be ignorant of. In Colossians 2, his desire is that people may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. Well, there's a problem there, folks. Um, and here's the problem. The way he's describing the incarnation um, is really kind of focusing in, 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 in such a way that we end up with a very pantheistic, mystical view. Apparently, Jesus is the force, and and you know, and the the Zen Buddhists and their understanding of the spirit that's in the world out there—that it was Jesus the whole time, this impersonal force. Yeah, there's some problems there that are worth exploring, and I just wanted to pass them along to you. All right, we're going to take our break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. 
You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, do you think there would be a lot of controversy about Rob Bell's book if all he was preaching and teaching was, you know, what everybody's been preaching and teaching, you know, from the beginning in Christianity? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work 
and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, it's... Comparing Jesus to the force of Eastern religions and the spark and, yeah, um, and what's the implication that, you know, they've been, uh, you know, they've been tapping into Jesus the whole time. We just didn't even know it. Yeah, that's a problem. All right, let me read to you uh, Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Kevin DeYoung of the Gospel Coalition, he's... uh, De Young, Restless and Reformed. Anyway, he has a, a review of Rob Bell's book entitled God is Still Holy and What You Learned in Sunday School is Still True, a review of Love Wins. Note, this post is long. <laughs> it's long, he says. And so uh, we'll kind of watch our time, see if we're able to get through the whole thing. If not, I might cut it into two pieces, and part one will be today and part two tomorrow. But let me read what Kevin DeYoung writes. He says, Love Wins by Megachurch Pastor Rob Bell is the, as the subtitle suggests, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Here's the gist. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present and a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy, but hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can this good how can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. There will be no eternal conscious torment. God says no to injustice in the age to come. But he does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary suffering upon ourselves, and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. That's Kevin DeYoung's synopsis of what Rob Bell teaches. Bell correctly notes many times that God is love. He also observes that Jesus is Jewish. The resurrection is important, and the phrase personal relationship with God is not in the Bible. He usually makes his argument by referencing Scripture. He he is easy to read and obviously feels very deeply for those who have been wronged or seem to be on the outside looking in. Unfortunately, Beyond this, there are dozens of problems with Love Wins. The theology is heterodox. The history is inaccurate. The impact on souls is devastating, and the use of Scripture is indefensible. Worst of all, Love Wins demeans the cross and misrepresents God's character. Here are a few preliminaries. Before going any further with a critique, a number of preliminary comments are in order. A few opening remarks may help put this critical review in context and encourage productive responses. One, although Bell asks a lot of questions, 350 by one count, we should not write off the provocative theology as mere question-raising. Bell did not write an entire book because he was looking for some good resources on heaven and hell. This isn't the 13-year-old in your youth group asking the teacher, how can a good God send people to hell? Any pastor worth his covenant salt will welcome sincere questions like this. Good question, Jenny. Let's see what the Bible says about that. But Bell is a popular teacher of a huge church with a huge following. This book is not an invitation to talk. It's It's him telling us what he thinks. Nothing wrong with that. As Bell himself writes, but this isn't a book of questions, it's a 
book of responses to these questions from page 19. Two, we should notice the obvious. This is a book. This is a book with lots of scripture references. It is a book that draws from history and personal experiences. It makes a case for something. It purports one story of Christianity to be better than another. Bell means to persuade. He wants to convince us of something. He is a teacher teaching. This book is not a poem. It is not a piece of art. This is not a theological book by a pastor trying to impart a different way of... um, Oh, sorry. This is a theological book by a pastor trying to impart a different way of looking at heaven and hell. Whether Bell is creative or or a provocateur is beside the point. If Bell is is inconsistent, unclear, or inaccurate, claiming the artist mantle is no help. Three, I'm sure that many people looking to defend Bell will draw it to a couple will be drawn to a couple of escape hatches he launches along the way. As you'll see, the book is is a sustained attack on the idea that those who fail to believe in Jesus Christ in this life will suffer eternally for their sins. This is the traditional Christianity he finds misguided and toxic. See, preface page 8. But in no uh, but in one or two places Bell seems more agnostic. For instance, on page 115, he writes, Will everybody be saved, or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? Those are questions, or more accurately, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't. And so we simply respect them, creating a space for the freedom that love requires. These are strange sentences because they fall in the chapter where Bell argues that God wants everyone to be saved and God gets what he wants. He tells us that never-ending punishment does not give God glory and God's love will eventually melt even the hardest hearts. So it's unclear where the sudden agnosticism comes from. Is Bell wrestling with himself? Did a friend or editor ask him to throw in a few caveats? Is he simply inconsistent? Similarly, at the end, Bell argues rather out of the blue that we need to trust God in the present, that our choices here and now matter more than we can begin to imagine because we can miss out on rewards and celebrations. That's page 197. This book almost looks like an old-fashioned call to turn to Christ before it's too late. When you look more carefully, however, you see that Bell is not saying what evangelicals might think. He wants us to make the most of life because, quote, while we may get other opportunities, we won't get the one right in front of us again. In other words, there are consequences for our actions in this life and in the next, and we can't get this moment back, but there will always be more chances. If you don't live life to the fullest and choose love now, you may initially miss out on some good things in in the life to come, but in the end, love wins. For anyone tempted to take these few lines and make Bell sound orthodox, I encourage you to read the whole book more carefully. Likewise, before you rush to accept that Bell believes in hell and believes Christ is the only way, pay attention to his conception of hell and what way he thinks Jesus is the only way. Bad theology usually sneaks in under the guise of familiar language. There is a reason He's written a two uh, written two hundred pages on why you must be deluded to think people end up in eternal conscious t- uh, punishment under the just wrath of God. 
Words mean something even when some of them seem forced or out of place. Take the book as a whole to uh, get Bell's whole message. Four, it is, impossible, it is possible that I, like other critics, am mean-spirited, nasty, and cruel. But voicing strong disagreement does not automatically make me any of those. Judgmentalism is not the same as making judgments. The same Jesus who said, do not judge, in Matthew 7, 1, calls his opponents dogs and pigs in Matthew 7, 6. Paul pronounces an anathema on those who preach a false gospel, Galatians 1, 8. A disagreement among professing Christians is is not a plague on the church. In fact, it is something necessary. The whole Bible is full of evaluation and encourages the faithful to be discerning and to make their own evaluations. What's tricky is that some fights are stupid and some judgments are unfair and judgmental, but this must be proven, not assumed. Bell feels strongly about this matter of heaven and hell, and so do a lot of other people. Strong language and forceful arguments are appropriate. Five, I'm not against conversation. What I am against is false teaching. I did not go to the trouble of writing a review because I worry that God can't handle our questions. The question is never whether God can handle our honest repra- uh, reappraisals of traditional Christianity, but whether he likes them. On the subject of conversation, it's worth pointing out that this book actually mitigates against further conversation. For starters, there's the McLaren-esque complaint about the closed-minded traditionalists who don't allow for questions, change, and maturity, page 9 of the preface. This is a kind of preemptive, damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't approach to conversation, cross-reference, page 183. In essence, let's talk, but I know already that the benighted and violent will hate my theology. That's har- That hardly invites further dialogue. More practically, Bell includes no footnotes for his historical claims, and Rarely gives um, chapter and verses when citing the Bible. It's difficult to examine Bell's claims when he is less than careful in backing them up. Six, this is not an evangelistic work, not in the traditional sense anyway. The primary intended audience appears to be not so much secularists with objections to Christianity, a la Keller's reason for God, but disaffected evangelicals who can't accept the doctrine they grew up with. Bell writes for the growing number who have become aware that the Christian story had been hijacked. Love Wins is for those who have heard a version of the gospel that now makes their stomachs churn and their pulses rise and makes them cry out, I would never be a part of that, quote from page 8 of the preface. This is a book for people like Bell, people who grew up in in the evangelical environment and don't want to leave it completely but want it to want to change it, grow up out of it, and transcend it. The emerging church is not an evangelistic strategy. It's the last rung for evangelicals falling off the ladder into liberalism or unbelief. Over and over, Bell refers to the staggering number of people just like him, people who can't believe the message they used to believe, people who want nothing to do with traditional Christianity, people who don't want to leave the faith but can't live in the faith that they once embraced. I have no doubt that there are many people like this inside and outside of our churches. Some will leave the faith altogether. Others, and they are in the worst position, will opt for liberalism, which has always seen itself as a halfway house between conservative orthodoxy and secular disbelief. But before we let Bell and others write the present story, we must remember that there are also a staggering number of young people who want the straight-up, unvarnished truth. 
They want doctrinal edges and traditional orthodoxy. They want no-holds-barred preaching. They don't want to leave traditional Christianity. They are ready to go deeper into it. Love Wins has ignited such a firestorm of controversy because it's the current fissure point for a larger fault line. As younger generations come up against an increasingly hostile culture environment, they are breaking into one of two directions, back to robust orthodoxy, often reformed, may I assert, hopefully Lutheran, or back to liberalism. The neo-evangelical consensus is cracking up. Love Wins is simply one of many tremors. So where to begin? With those as preliminaries, you know this won't be a brief review, and believe me when I tell you, we've just scratched the surface here. Uh, The hard part is knowing where to begin. Love Wins is such a departure from historic Christianity that there is no easy way to tackle it. You can't point to two or three main problems or three or four exegetical missteps. This is a markedly different telling of the gospel from start to finish, and he's right. To fully engage the material would require not only deconstruction, but a full reconstruction of orthodox theology. A book review, however, is not the place to build a systematic theology, so where to begin? I want to approach Love Wins by looking at seven areas. Bell's view of traditional evangelical theology, history, exegesis, eschatology, Christology, mm -hmm, gospel, and God. One. Not your grandmother's Christianity. Perhaps the best place to start is to show that Bell routinely disparages the faith of traditional evangelicalism. In uh, in the preface on page 8, Bell writes, A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided. It's toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. At least Bell is honest. In the next chapter, not even his grandmother gets off unscathed. Bell reminisces about the scary picture of a floating cross bridge to heaven in her house. He likens it to a joint project from Thomas Kincaid and Dante, or like Dungeons and Dragons, Billy Graham and the barbecue pit rolled into it. He and his sister were freaked out. This story of leaving earth to go to heaven by means of faith in Jesus Christ is not the story he wants to promote anymore. Later, Bell allows that that traditionalists can believe their story of heaven and hell, but it isn't a very good story. That's page 110. Traditional Christians have inferior views to share because in their, uh, because in their story, so many people end up in hell. That's why, quote, Uh, The Christians who talk the most about going to heaven while everybody else goes to hell don't throw very good parties. That's from page 179. Not only are they bad at parties, traditionalists are bad at art. An entrance understanding of the gospel rarely creates good art or innovation or a number of other things. It's It's a cheap view of the world because it's a cheap view of God. It's a shriveled imagination, Bell writes on one, page 180. So much so much for finding beauty or delight in western civilization. I'll leave it to the art critics and the party goers to determine if it's true that second to blondes universalists have more fun. What is interesting is that Bell struggles to leave his evangelical upbringing behind. He knows the temptation to be embarrassed 
that, quote, we were so simple or naive or brainwashed or whatever terms arise when we haven't come to terms with our own story, page 194. And yet he believes it is important to embrace past understandings of the faith, even if people like him were shaped by a certain environment and reared in certain experiences that can be easily deconstructed. Again, we sense Bell is trying to reconcile an earlier faith with his present trajectory. The result is an awkward attempt to claim his past while still wanting to evolve out of it. This presumes, of course, that the Christian faith is not a deposit to guard or a tradition that must not change. See 2 Timothy uh, 1.14 or 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Much of Bell's polemic fails if there is a core of apostolic teaching that we are called not just to embrace as part of our journey, but to protect from deviation and defend against uh, false teaching. See Acts 20, verses 29-31. Historical Problems Bell maintains he is not saying anything new. And that's right. The problem is he makes it sound like his everyone ends up restored and reconciled to God theology is is smack dab in the center of the Christian tradition. Here's what Bell says, quote, And so, beginning with the early church, there is a long tradition of Christians who believe that God will ultimately restore everything and everybody because Jesus says in Matthew 19, that there will be a renewal of all things. Peter says in Acts 3 that Jesus will restore everything, and Paul says in Colossians 1 that through Christ uh, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, page 107. It's important to Bell that he falls within the deep, wide, diverse stream of, quote, historic Orthodox Christian faith. That's a part of the preface. Uh, pages uh, 9 and 10. Therefore, he argues that, quote, at the center of the Christian tradition, since the first church has been the insistence that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, page 109. This bold claim flies in the face of Richard Bauckham's historical survey uh, from his book entitled Universalism, a Historical Survey, uh, put out uh, by Thamelios Press in uh, September 1978, or well, that's Thamelios Journal. It reads, Until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians taught the reality of eternal torment in hell. Here and there, outside the theological mainstream, were some who believed that the wicked would be finally annihilated. Even fewer were the advocates of universal salvation, though these few included some major theologians of the early church. Eternal punishment was firmly asserted in official creeds and confessions of the churches. It must have seemed a, a dispensable, uh, an indispensable part of the Christ, uh, universal Christian belief as the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation." Universalism, though, is a different, though in a different form than Bell's, and for different reasons, has been present in the church since Origen. But it was never in the center of the tradition. Origen's theology was partly anticipated by his fellow Platonist Clement of Alexandria, and later shows up in the Cappadocian Gregory of Nyssa. But according to William Moore and Henry Austin uh, Wilson in the uh, Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers series. Gregory's theology of hell is hard to pin down. He makes much of God being all in all and evil being eradicated, but he also warns of the final judgment and the flames ready to engulf the wicked. Whatever Origen's influence on the Cappadocian fathers, and it was considerable, Origen's views were later refuted by Augustine and, as Bauckham notes, condemned in 543 at the Council of Constantinople. 
Bell also mentions Jerome, Basil, Augustine, because they claimed many people in their day believed in the ultimate reconciliation of all people. See page 107 of Bell's book. But listing all of the heavyweights who took time to refute the position you are now espousing is not a point in your favor. Most egregiously, Bell calls on Martin Luther (laughs) in support of post-mortem salvation. Page 106 of the book. But as Carl Truman has pointed out, anyone familiar with Luther's creedal statements and overall writing, not to mention the actual quotation in question, will quickly see that Luther is not on Bell's side. In fact, far from it. Universalism has been around for a long time, but so has every other heresy. Arius rejected the full deity of Christ, and many people followed him. This hardly makes Arianism part of the wide, diverse stream of Christian orthodoxy. Every point of Christian doctrine has been contested, but some have been deemed heterodox. Universalism traditionally was considered one of those points. True, many recent liberal theologians have argued for versions of universalism, and this is where Bell stands, not in the center of the historic Christian tradition. Exegetical Problems Some people may be impressed by the array of biblical texts Bell employs, but there is a less here than there's less here than meets the eye. Time after time, key points in Bell's argument rest on huge exegetical mistakes. A partial list of even ten in in no particular order. One Bell cites Psalm sixty five, Ezekiel thirty six, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Philippians two, and Psalm twenty two to show that all peoples will eventually be reconciled to God. He does not mention that some of these are promises to God's people, some are general promises about the nations coming to God, and others are about universal uh, the universal acknowledgement not to be equated with saving faith. On the last day that Jesus Christ is Lord, not one of his texts supports his conclusion. 2. Similarly, Bell lists a number of passages that point to final restoration. Jeremiah chapter 5, Lamentations 3, Hosea 14, Zephaniah 3, Isaiah 57, Hosea 6, Joel 3, Amos 9, Nahum 2, Zephaniah 2, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 10, Micah 7, and all of these are listed on pages 86 and 87. Anyone familiar with the prophets knows that they often finish with a promise of future blessing, but anyone familiar with the prophets should also know that these promises are for God's covenant people, predicated on faith and repentance and fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Exactly. Three, Bell seems to recognize the covenantal nature of the promised restoration, so he goes out of his way to point out that the restoration is not just for God's people to prove this point, he cites a passage from Isaiah chapter 19, where it is predicted that an altar to the Lord will be in the midst of the land of Egypt. Bell concludes that no failure is final and that consequences can always be corrected, but Isaiah 19 is not even remotely about post-mortem opportunities to repent. Mm -hmm. The text is about God's plan to humble Egypt to the point where they cry out to Israel's God for deliverance. The Lord will strike Egypt striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord and will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. See Isaiah chapter 19. The text is about God's plan to humble Egypt to the point where they cry out to Israel, uh, Israel's God for deliverance. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the God, uh, to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. See Isaiah 19 verse 22. God makes no promise that every soul in Egypt will be saved. Rather, he promises, like the prophets do time and time again, 
that if they call on the Lord, he will have mercy on them. There is no thought that they will do this calling in the afterlife. Four, Bell makes no attempt to understand John 14, verse 6. In context, after acknowledging that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, Bell quickly adds what he doesn't say is how or when or in what manner the mechanism functions that people that gets people to God through Jesus. He doesn't even state that those coming to the Father through Jesus will even know that they are coming exclusively through him. He simply claims that whatever God is doing in the world to know and redeem and love and restore the world is happening through him. Page 154. Even a cursory glance at John 14 shows that the through in verse 16 refers to faith. The chapter begins by saying, Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 7 talks about knowing the Father. Verse 9 and 10 explain that we see and know the Father by believing that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. Verses 11 and 12 touch on belief yet again. Coming to the Father through Jesus Christ means through faith in Christ. This is in keeping with the overall purpose of John's gospel in, found in John chapter 20, verse 31, which says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Bell, five, sorry, five, Bell thinks the rich man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, has nothing to do with the afterlife. He isn't asking about how to get to heaven when he dies. He's simply wondering how to get in on the good things God is doing in the age to come. Again, Bell ignores all contextual clues to the contrary. Given the resurrection discussion alive in Jesus' day, see Mark 12, 18 through 27, the rich man is likely asking, how can I be sure I'll be saved in the final resurrection? He is thinking of life after death. That's why he says inherit and why the previous section in Mark discusses Bell's dreaded entrance theology. Mark 10, 13 through 16. What's more, verse 30 makes clear that some of the blessings in following Jesus come in the next life, what Jesus calls in the age to come, eternal life. If eternal life is equivalent to saying the age to come, then Jesus is the master of redundancy. But the two terms are not identical. Eternal life here means life that lasts forever. Six, Bell reads too much into Paul's discipline passages. Paul handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to teach them not to blaspheme. He disciplined the man in Corinth so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Therefore, Bell reasons, failure is never final. But stating the purpose and hope of discipline, as Paul does, is one thing. Assuming the repentance has happened is another. And thinking any of this opens the door up to post-mortem second chances is a thing the text never even hints at. Seven, Sometimes Bell just ignores the verse, the verses that don't support his thesis. While arguing that we should be extremely careful about making negative judgments on people's on eternal destinies, Bell cites Jesus' words in John 3.17 that he, quote, did not come to judge the world but to save it. This, Jesus, Bell says, is a vast, expansive, generous mystery, leading us to conclude, hopefully, that heaven is, after all, full of surprises— Bell's lean into universalism here would be significantly muted had he gone on to Jesus' words in verse 18, which reads, Whoever believes in him, for instance the Son, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Likewise, according to John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 8. Bell's overview of Revelation skims along the surface of the book in a way that misses all of the hard parts he doesn't want to see. Bell explains that Revelation is a book written for God's people during a time when they were being persecuted. As such, there are lots of pictures of wrongs being righted and people being held accountable. But he says, the letter does not end with blood and violence. It ends with the world permeated with God's love. This is not a bad summary, but the three points he draws from this narrative are problematic. First, he explains the judgment he, the judgments by reminding us that belief off, belief, uh, the people often reject the love and joy in front of them and choose to live in their own hells all the time. But even a cursory read through Revelation shows that the violent judgments issue from God's throne. They are poured out from bowls and thrown down on the earth. Christ comes on a war horse with a sharp sword in his mouth. There's no sense that the wicked are suffering only from their poor decisions in life. They wail for fear because of the one whom they pierced is coming with clouds for recompense. See Revelation 1, verse 7. Second, Bell suggests that maybe the gates in heaven are never shut because new citizens will continue to enter the city as everyone is eventually reconciled to God. Page 115. This interpretation is clearly at odds with the rest of Revelation 21 and 22, which emphasizes several times that there are some accursed ones left outside the city. 21 verse 8, 27, 22 verse 3, verses uh, 14 and 15 in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. You get what I'm saying? The theme of the judgment carries through right to the end of the book. What's more, those facing this judgment will be thrown into the lake of fire, where the torment never ends, which is the second death. See Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and 21, verse 8. There is never a hint of post-mortem second chances, and every indication that there is an irreversible judgment decreed of every soul at the end of the age. The gates are open as a sign of the city's complete safety and security, not as an indication that more will be saved after death. This accord, Third, according to Bell, the announcement, I am making all things new, suggests new possibilities. This in turn means we should leave the door open that the final eternal state of every person has not been fixed, page 116. Again, this is a supposition without any warrant in the text where the newness of heaven speaks of a new holiness, a new world, a new pain-free existence, and a new closeness with God. Heaven is not new because people in hell get new chances to repent. Nine. Pay attention to this one. What Bell does with Sodom and Gomorrah should make even his most ardent supporters wince. Really, you have to wonder if Bell has any interest in being constrained by by a serious study of biblical text. In one place, Bell argues from Ezekiel 16 that because the fortunes of Sodom will be restored, Ezekiel 16.53, this suggests that the forever destiny of others might end in restoration. But it should be obvious that the restoration of Sodom and Ezekiel is about, the, is about the city, not about the individual inhabitants of the town who were already judged in Genesis 19. 
the people condemned by sulfur and fire 1,500 years earlier were not getting a second lease on post-mortem life. The current city would be restored. And besides, the whole point of Sodom's restoration is to shame, the wick, to shame wicked Samaria, Ezekiel 16, 54, so that they might bear the penalty of their lewdness and abomination. This hardly fits with Bell's view of God and judgment. If that were bad enough... The other discussion on Sodom is even worse because Jesus says it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Bell concludes that there is hope for all of the other Sodoms and Gomorrahs of the world. See page 85. Bell takes a passage about judgment, judgment that will be so bad for Capernaum, it's even worse than God's judgment on Sodom, and turns it into a tacit support for ultimate universalism. Jesus' warning says nothing about new hope for Sodom. It says everything about the hopelessness of unbelieving Capernaum. 10. Not surprisingly, Bell frequently harkens back to the Pauline promise in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that God is reconciling or uniting all things in Christ, page 149. These are favorite passages of universalists, but they cannot carry the freight universalists want them to. Take Ephesians 1, for example. Paul says that God's plan in the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. The Greek word for unite is a long word. Anakafaliasathai. <laughs> that is a long word. It means to sum up, to bring together to a main point, to gather together. It's like uh, an author, uh, an author finishing the last chapter of his book, or a conductor bringing the symphony from cacophony to harmony. It is a glorious promise already begun in some ways by the word of Christ. But we know from the rest of Ephesians that Paul does not expect all peoples to be reconciled to God. He speaks of sons of disobedience and children of wrath in chapter 2. In chapter 5, he makes clear that the sexually immoral and the covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 6, he warns that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The uniting of all things does not entail the salvation of all people. It means that everything in the universe, heaven and earth, the spiritual world and the physical world, will finally submit to the lordship of Christ. Some in joyful worship of their beloved Savior and others in just, punish, in just punishment for their wretched treason. In the end, God wins. <clears throat> One last general point about Bell's exegesis. Bell has a reputation for being brilliant and creative, and he probably is, is in, a certain, in certain spheres. But his use of Scripture exhibits neither characteristic. In fact, it's naive, literalistic, uh, literalistic biblicism. He flattens everything either to make traditional theology sound ridiculous, inconsistent, or to make a massive point from one out-of-context verse. He makes no attempt to understand metaphors, genre, or imagery, either in Scripture or in his grandmother's painting. He does not try to harmonize anything that might rot his fresh take on the Bible. He loves, Jew the, he loves Jewish background and context, but he shows very little familiar, familiarity with the actual storyline and the shape of the Old Testament. His style may be engaging to some, but look up the passages for yourselves and then pick up a reputable study Bible or basic commentary series. You'll see serious questions Bell's use—you'll yeah, seriously question Bell's use of the Scripture. All right. I am going to pause right there. That's as far as we're going to get in DeYoung's uh, critique today because he's got a long, long way to go, and uh, we've got to uh, move along to the next segment. So we'll, we'll, we'll do part two tomorrow. 
So if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, So if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. I think we're going to have a normal week this week. That means get your hip boots, your waders, um, well, you know, shovel. Maybe a gas mask. Definitely duct tape. You need duct tape. You always need duct tape. Let's uh, cue up the sermon review music here. The good, the bad, and, uh, well, just the 
the outright ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via North Point uh, Church. Uh, Pastor Andy Stanley presiding. Now, I think they're in Georgia. Hang on a second here. Let me make sure. Nope. Sorry. Um, no, no, that, that. Sorry. Wrong one. <laughs> I, yeah, I was looking at the other North Point. <laughs> the one in Springfield. I'll look it up. I think Andy Stanley's down in Georgia. The name of the sermon. Balanced. Developing a plan. This is a sermon about financial management. And the reason I picked it is because I want you to listen carefully to, well, what God is like, according to Andy Stanley. Is what you're going to be listening for is a proper use of law and gospel. The God he believes in is apparently the God of the cosmic quid pro quo. You'll see what I'm saying as we get into the sermon. Anyway, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Andy Stanley, Balanced, Developing a Plan. Thank you for choosing North Point Ministries Podcast. Today is the sixth in the six-part series, Balanced. Listen as Andy examines the freedom and peace that follow when we reprioritize our money. You can access the forms and spreadsheets Andy references, as well as full videos the, from the, the series. The, the, the spreadsheets? <laughs> the what? Hey, I've never been to a church service where I needed a spreadsheet. Okay. By visiting northpoint.org slash balance. We are finishing up this series, Balanced. And um, during the series, I've gotten all kinds of incredible email and letters. Just awesome, awesome stories. Um, but there's one question that has surfaced more than any other question. And so even though it's not really part of today's message, I want to answer that before we jump into this last part. In fact, I got to be honest, I've ne- in 13 years, I've never seen, I've never heard any one question asked so many times. Um, it, it was the result of, I mean, it came as a result of the series, but I've had people stop me in the community and ask me this. Um, I've had people call my home and ask me this. People have honestly emailed. Um, yesterday, two people saw Sandra d- during our middle school um, event we're having this weekend, and they stopped her and asked her. So I thought I should ask, answer that question before we move on. And the question is, what did Sandra wear to the presidential <laughs> prayer service? Now, I had a lady walk up to me yesterday in the community, and she said, this is how the conversation started. Andy. Obviously, you don't understand how women think. I said, true. What does this have to do with? Where is this conversation going? She said, you never told us what Sandra wore. I'm thinking, here we've been talking about all these incredible ideas and how to change your life financially. And the only thing anyone wants to know, and I think it's primarily women, because men, you're like, huh? Is is what did she wear? And so I asked her to come today and model it for you. But if you know my wife, that wasn't about to happen. So I have to just tell you, she, this, is, this is great. You remember this? If you weren't here last week, it's like, what does this have anything to do with anything? You just you have to go on, listen to the whole story. She, um, she went to Dillard's 
and found a dress and a jacket on sale for $289. And so that's what she wore to the national prayer service. So anyway, (laughs) now you can go home. That's what you came for. You thought, is he ever going to tell us? Okay, we're in the the last part of this series, and we've been talking about balance, right? And we said that there's three physical laws of balance. We've been relating to those, to our financial laws of balance. And the first one is that whenever you're balancing something, you have to have a what? Reference what? Reference point, right. That is, and in in the world of finances, we decided the thing that we should never, ever, ever take our eye off is where our money is going. That all of us need some kind of system that we can use to keep an eye on where our money's going. We just got to spy on our money. At no point, I don't care if you're a Christian, non-Christian, some other religion, matter. One of the best habits you can develop is figuring out a way to keep an eye on where all your money's going. You need to. So uh, God wants you to use Quicken. Got it. Figuring out a way to keep an eye on where all your money's going. You need to be knowing where your money's going. Then we said the third, the third law of physical balance is you have to have a clear objective. In other words, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to keep this pole vertical. Whenever you're balancing, there's some clear objective as to what it is you're trying to do, what it is you're trying to accomplish. And we said in the realm of finances, our objective is to honor God. To honor God in our spending, our saving, our giving, and what we, how we use our stuff, our goal is to ask the question, how can I honor God? Not with a percentage of my money or my wealth. How do I honor God with everything? And as we begin to ask that question, that helps us begin to reprioritize our spending, our saving, our giving, and everything else. And then we said, whenever you're balancing something physically, you have to make constant corrections, constant corrections. My left hand's making constant corrections, constant corrections. So we said in the realm of finance, there's several areas where we need to make constant correction. The first one we talked about was debt. We need to rethink our use of debt, make some corrections there. Um, I feel like I'm in a financial seminar. Good night. How is this a biblical sermon? Debt, make some corrections there. Um, We talked last week about spending. We need to make corrections in our spending. We talked about giving and generosity. We need to rethink generosity. And so those are just three of several areas where you make constant corrections. Got to know where it's going. Got to know why you're managing it. And then in light of those two things, constant correction, constant correction. Now, today, as we finish up, what I want to do is I want to give you a simple, simple, simple plan for your personal finances. And again, you may... Apparently, Andy Stanley is like E.F. Hutton, okay? So you got to kind of lean in and listen. He's going to give you a simple thing for your finances. Woo! Got to tell you. By the way, North Point Community Church, where he's pastoring, is in Alpharetta. Uh, Al, uh, Al, Al, <laughs> I cannot pronounce this. Alpharetta, Georgia. Anyway, it's down, down, down there. Testament. You may be just a person who believes in God, not so sure about the Jesus thing. Um, you may be here today because somebody dragged you here. You're not really sure about any of it. And we're thrilled that you're here because here's some free financial advice and it is great advice. Okay. Scratching head here. Um, you, okay. So you're acknowledging that there's people in your audience. Cause he's one of the seeker driven guys that are, are that they're, they're there to, you know, to find out more about the Jesus thing and you're giving them financial advice. So somebody showed up at your church to get to find out about the Jesus thing, and they're leaving with a spreadsheet. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Kind of missing the point. Go with us that far or not, here is great, great advice. I want to give you a plan, a different way of thinking about your entire financial picture, and this is sort of the bookends or the context for everything else we've talked about so far. Now, 
to get us started, there are essentially five things that you can do with your money. Now, there's some more and there's subcategories of all these, but there's essentially five things that you can do with money. You can spend it. We're all pretty good at that. You can repay debt depending on how you spent or misspent your money. Um, Pay taxes, hopefully you're doing that. That'll get you in trouble and that impacts these other two if you don't. Um, You can save your money and you can give your money. That's, That's basically the five things that we do with our money. And I didn't need a pastor to help me understand that either. Um, you can save your money and you can give your money. That's, that's basically the five things that we do with our money. And for, the, for most of us and for most Americans, this is our order of priority, isn't it? Priority number one, spend. Priority number two, pay for the things I couldn't afford. That's still spend. Priority number three, oh yeah, I got to pay my taxes. If there's any left over, maybe I can save some. And if there's some left over from saving, maybe I'll give some to people in my community, um, to my local church, to local church charities, whatever it might be. This is, these are the five things we do with our money. And essentially, this is the order in which we do them in. This is, this is our priority. Now, let me re- go through the list one more time and and kind of put a different spin on it, okay? Number one, me. Number two, me. Number three, America. Number four, me. Number five, God and others. Let me go over that again because that was kind of complicated. Number one, (laughs) me, me, America. That's kind of we, We, me, God and others. That's our priority. Now, the the problem with this, uh, from a Christian perspective, and the problem with this, even if you're not a Christian, or again, you're kind of on the margins or looking in, is this. Essentially, essentially, this puts God and others last, which means essentially, God and others get the leftovers. If I haven't spent it all, if I don't owe it all, if the government doesn't get it all, and if I don't save it for myself later, if there's any left over, God and others, here's what I want you to have. God and others get my leftovers. Now, in spite of the fact that most of us prioritize our money in this way, that doesn't keep us, that doesn't even cause any hesitation on our part when we get in trouble to go to God and say, God, would you help me? God, I need to pay, I gotta, I gotta sell this house. And God, I need a job. And God, I need more money. And God, I gotta get my kids through college. And God, I need a scholarship. God, help me, help me, help me, help me. And God says, help you what? Help me take care of me. Listen to what, listen to what he's talking about God here. But I'm thinking, <laughs> if he's looking at this, he's going, why? Because you pretty much shut me out. I'm like an emergency fund. I'm like, you know, if they're passing the hat at the office or here comes that offering bucket again and I'm gonna reach in my wallet and just, you know, put a few dollars in, you know. Here's the thing. We have a habit here, follow me. We have a habit here. A credit card company or somebody else forces us to have a system here. The government forces us to have a system here. Our employer forces us in many cases or allows us to have a system here. This, totally random. Completely left over. Whatever I have left over, I'll give. And then we say, God, would you please help me in the area of my personal finances? Now, here's what we're gonna discover from scripture today. This is, this is sort of where we're going. The way you prioritize your personal finances represents either an open door to your heavenly father or a closed door. 
in both the Old and the New Testament, not the fact that we have money to manage, but the way we, and here's the key word today, the way we prioritize our money, the way we prioritize our money represents an open door to God or a closed door to God. This priority system is a closed door. Me, So it all depends on you and your obedience. You want God's help in your finances? God better see an open door or he ain't helping you. An open door to God or a closed door to God. This priority system is a... Makes you wonder, how did all the pagan rich people come about? Closed door. Me, me, we, me, God and others. And Heavenly Father, in light of this, please help me, bless me, give me opportunities, help me to close the sale, sell my house, get my kids in school. I desperately need you. I want you to be involved, but you need to know as you come in, you will be number five. Now, that being the case, I wanna draw your attention to two passages of scripture, and I wanna argue as best I can for the fact that if you will begin to systematically change the way you prioritize, the way you manage money, that if you'll begin to think differently in terms of your priorities, it is actually, as we're gonna see from Old and New Testament, an invitation for God to do something unusual in the area of your personal finances. So if you want, God's waiting for you to invite him to make it so that some great things happen in your personal finances. He's just waiting for you to give him the invitation. ...in the area of your personal finances. The letters and the emails that I get over and over and over whenever we talk about money and throughout the year, but specifically when we talk about money are people who say this, Andy, I don't understand it. And this isn't just true of our church. Any pastor, any church that that preaches these truths get these kind of letters and emails. Some of you could tell your own story. I know I could. That says, I don't understand it. When I began to reorder and reprioritize my personal finances according to what the scripture teaches, when I finally surrendered, not a percentage, but when I finally surrendered everything and said, God, I wanna do this in a way that honors you. Andy, I don't understand it, but I have more money. We're saving more money. We're spending less money. We're- so all you've gotta do is show God that you're inviting him in. You gotta give him an open door and you will have more money. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I want to read something to you uh, by the Apostle Paul. Written to the Galatian churches who were following, falling into uh, the Judaizing heresy, mixing works and grace. Paul writing to them. We are familiar with the opening. Uh, you know, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema. That means damned. Uh, Galatians 3 starts off with this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So, so let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Go with by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you and do so, do so, among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of the who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified or signed or agreed upon. Now that the promises now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ this is what i mean the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by god so as to make the promise void For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come, whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, Paul here is ripping into the Galatians because he says they're foolish. Having started in the Spirit, they're now trying to be perfected in the flesh. What we're hearing from Andy Stanley on this money sermon is nothing less than a cosmic quid pro quo. You do your part, God will do his part. That's how it all works. This isn't faith. This is just you flat out figuring out what the principle is, applying it. And by you applying it, God looks down and goes, oh, cool. They've done what I finally told them to do. Finally, I can bless them. And the blessing hinges not on your faith and trust in Christ, but it hinges on your obedience to the principle. 
No faith required. We continue. Ever, ever, ever given to a church before because they just, you know, they just had a bad attitude about it, which I totally understand. And they decided they're finally going to start tithing. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And I haven't even asked, I mean, I'm, I'm careful about asking people to tithe. That's a big jump off. Both of these families decided they were going to tithe and they couldn't afford it. But both of them said, it didn't matter. We're so upside down financially, we might as well give some away before it all just goes away. That's what they said. It's going away anyway. We might as well give some, right? Because you know what? These other four categories are just sucking it up, or three out of the the four categories. It's just going away. We might as well give some. And both of these letters went into detail about what they feel like. I didn't tell them to write this. What they feel like is God's intervention on their behalf as they began to reprioritize their thinking about Money. Let me let me read you a couple passages. This is found in the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. Pretty easy book to find. Open your Bible in the middle, go left. You'll probably find it, or maybe actually go right, depending on how many notes are in the back of your Bible. Malachi chapter three. I want to read you a couple verses. Um, Malachi is a prophet, and he came to the nation of Israel and was speaking against the leadership in Israel. And essentially, here's what his message was. Then I want to read a couple verses. He said this. He said to the nation, you're bringing all your leftovers to God. You're, you know, and back then they had a sacrificial system where they were supposed to bring the best sheep and the, you know, the best of their animals and the best of their produce and give that to God first. And he says, you're giving God your leftovers. And then there's a kind of funny part where he says, you're bringing sheep to God. You wouldn't even eat yourself. You wouldn't even feed it to a guest. You're taking like your most scrawny, messed up, you know, chased around by the the dogs, got caught in the gate. You know, you're bringing your lame animals and presenting those to God. And God is not honored by that. You're bringing him leftovers. And then here's kind of the crux of his message, Malachi chapter three, verse seven. And here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for the issue of priority. These were people who were giving, but their priorities were upside down. He says this, verse seven, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And then God says through Malachi to the people, return to me and I will return to you. Cause and effect, return to me and I will return. Cause and effect. This is quid pro quo. This is law, not gospel. And this is apparently blessing by obedience. And um, where's faith again in this? In your direction, but I'm waiting for you to move in mine. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? So the people in Israel would say, return to God. Um, what, What does that look like? What do you mean return? Verse eight. Then Malachi says, will a mere mortal rob God? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, to which they say, but you ask, how are we robbing you? How do we rob God? How do we return to God? Verse, middle of verse eight, answer, in tithes and offerings. Now, let me explain tithe real quick and we'll jump in at verse nine. A tithe, most of you probably know this, is 10%. And Jewish people in this particular time, this is about 400 years before Jesus showed up, okay? About 400 you know, BC, about around then. And in ancient Israel, they had to give a double tithe. They had to give on a periodic basis, monthly, or you know, whenever they had income, they brought 10% of their income off the top to the temple to pay for what happened in the temple and to pay the priest and to keep the sacrificial system going. And then some of that money went out to the communities um, for, for poor people. 
Then they had a second tithe, imagine doing this, where they were supposed to save up 10%, another 10%, store it up, save it up. And then once a year, they had a national party. And you took your 10% and you invested it in this national feast that celebrated God. It was just a big party and you saved all year 10% of your income to invest in this giant national feast that celebrated God. Then, that wasn't complicated enough, every third year, the money that was normally given for this big national party, every third year, that money was distributed to poor people in the community. So you gave 10% on an ongoing basis you know, to the temple and to God and to keep the sacrificial system going. Then another 10% you saved up for a big party or to distribute in your community for poor people. Now, the communities were way, 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 way smaller than ours. So it was, you know, wasn't as sophisticated a system as that would be for us. But essentially they knew according to God's law, they were to on a periodic basis be bringing 10% or a tithe to the temple to be distributed to the poor and to keep the priest alive and to keep the sacrificial system going. So when he says, God says, you've been robbing me of tithes. I mean, you've been giving but you've not been giving the way I've invited you to give. Giving is no longer the priority. And he says, in that way, God says, you've been robbing me. Verse nine, you, talking to Israel, not to us, are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, this is in relationship to the fact that God had a deal set up with Israel, set up back in the time of Moses. And God said, look, you honor me, I'll honor you. You honor me, I'll protect you from all your enemies. You honor me, your crops will grow bigger than everyone else's. You honor me, you'll be victorious. Doesn't this sound exactly like Rick Warren? I I, I want you to have blessings. This will be your decade of destiny, but you've got to make yourself blessable. Honor me, I'll protect you from all your enemies. You honor me, your crops will grow bigger than everyone else's. You honor me, you'll be victorious in battle. You honor me, you're gonna have lots of babies. You honor me, the whole world will look at you and go, whoa, who is their God? And at this time in their history, they had drifted away from honoring God. God and his law was no longer the priority. Verse 10, here's the command. Bring the whole tithe not your lame leftover animals. And if you've got anything left over, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and look at the cause and effect, priority, promise, that there may be food in my house. I want you to bring the whole thing into the storehouse. That is quit skimping off, you know, quit, quit spending it all, you know, giving it all to somewhere else and using it all up. I want you to bring the whole thing into me. And he says, then there will be food in my house, talking about the temple and the sacrificial system. Middle of verse 10. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is, this is kind of tricky. Test me. Now, this isn't test me like Jesus says, don't tempt the Lord your God. You know, tempt the Lord your God as you come up with an idea and see if God will do your bidding. This is different. Malachi says, look, God has promised that he's gonna honor you if you honor him. God has promised that if you move in his direction, he'll move in yours. God has promised that if you will prioritize his kingdom and prioritize his deal, he will take care of you. Now he says to the nation, you haven't been doing that. And God says, test me, try me. I dare you, I dare you. I double dog, double sheep. So um, just imagine that you're a, a non-believer trying to you know, test out, you know, kind of find a little bit more out about the Jesus thing over at Andy Stanley's church. What have you learned about Jesus? 
He's sitting on the sidelines waiting to bless you, but you got to be obedient. Are you hearing the gospel or are you hearing the law? This is nothing but pure, unadulterated law. Watch and see what I'll do. Because by prioritizing me financially, that lets me know, God would say, where your heart is. And when I've got your heart, I am moving in your direction and I am moving on your behalf. Now, so uh, God is waiting for you to change your heart and he'll, he'll know you're serious about that if you apply his principles in the realm of finance. No faith required, no repentance, no forgiveness of sins. God's just waiting for you to apply the right principles so that he can see that you've changed your heart in the right direction, and then, boom, he'll move in your direction. This isn't what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches something completely different. Uh, You've got your Bible. Flip on over to Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited. Notice the financial lingo there. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Well, so that kind of raises the question. If God's not going to count my sin against me, and all of that is reckoned to me because of faith, um, then God, according to this passage in Romans 4, isn't sitting up in heaven waiting for me to change my heart so that I can become blessable to him as he's walking by, seeing if the door is open so that he can finally step through and bless me. Because it says this, and, you know, this is, you know, I mean, Paul here is actually quoting David uh, from uh, one of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So all of the blessings that Andy Stanley is preaching here are blessings that are given as a wage. You do your part, God does his part. This is wage talk. This is not faith talk. This is wage. You earn your blessings. He wants my money. God says to the nation, and Jesus says, as we'll see in just a minute, this isn't about getting your money. This is about getting your heart. This is about getting your devotion. God says, I want to be number one. And God knows you and God knows me. And he knows this. When I'm number one in the realm of your finances, I'm number one in your life. Because your heart follows your money. Your heart and your affection follows the money trail. If I want to know what you're in love with, I just look at where you're spending your money. If I want to know what you're most concerned about, I just look at where your money's going. The same is true for me. So God says to the nation, I want you to move in my direction. How do we do that? I want you to put me first financially. God says, I want to bless you and I want to come on strong on your behalf. Well, how do we get you to do that? I want you to prioritize me. 
in the realm of finances. It is not about money. It is about priority. And God says, I don't want to be number five or number seven on your list. So using the logic of this theology then, um, if you've uh, run into a financial burp, hiccup, or setback, uh, maybe you've lost your job, or maybe you, you've been out of a job for a while and the recession has hit you hard, well, apparently you just haven't done what's necessary for God to bless you. The problem is you. And you better get your act together because God's just waiting for you to open that door and get things right enough so that he can bless you. It's your own fault. me in the realm of finances. It is not about money. It is about priority. And God says, I don't want to be number five or number seven on your list. And what an insult to me to make me fifth or seventh or tenth on the list and then have the nerve to get on your knees or lay in bed at night and say, oh, God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Move in my direction, which God says, well, why don't you move in mine? Well, I just, I just, I don't know. That's just too hard. Test me in this, the Lord God Almighty says, and see if I will not. Verse 10, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Okay, pause right there. He's going to point out here in just a second that this is a promise made to Israel, and it is because he's been pointing that out all along. But watch kind of the exegetical sleight of hand that he engages in and doesn't even provide any verses in the New Testament to support the uh, the principle that he's going to apply here. Watch this. Much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That's his promise to Israel. He says, test me. Put me first, move in my direction, and then watch and see what I do. Now, that is a promise to the nation of Israel. That's not a promise to the United States of America. That's not a direct promise to you and to me. But it reflects a principle that you see throughout the scripture. That in okay, he's just saying, see, that's not a promise to you and me, but it reflects a principle that I see throughout scripture. Hmm. God, it seems, says, look, now you have thrown open the door and you have invited me into that area of your life. Some of you have experienced this in raising your kids. You've just done it all wrong. Now, he hasn't given a single passage to support this allegation that this is some kind of a principle throughout all of the Bible, apparently, about opening up certain areas of your life to God so that, boom, he can finally come in. And you've just exasperated them, and you've got them mad, and you're mad at them, and there's just all this tension, all this tension, and you finally say, God, I throw up my hands. I Just show me how to do this. I'll do whatever you say. And you've seen things get better. You've seen this in your marriage. You've seen this in other areas of your life. You've, you've done it your way. You've done it your way. You've done it your way. It's been you, top four, God, number five, God, number seven, God, 10, maybe in your dating relationships, whatever. And when you finally threw up your hands and say, okay, I'm going to do this your way, it's as if God moved in your direction. The preeminent illustration, the epicenter of what happens in in terms of your heart happens in the area of your money and my money. It's not about money. It's about heart. It's about priority. It's about throwing the door open to God or closing the door on God. And at the same time saying, God, I'm closing the door by putting you last. Would you please come in and do something in this area of my life? Now, as you read the New Testament, Nothing could be clearer than the fact that God wants to move in a severe and tangible way in your direction. He made the first move by sending his son. 
that just see that's the hint. See, that's God hinting at you that he wants to move in your direction. I mean, after all, he did send his son. But you know, he he's his hands are tied. He can't. So you do your part. His son is a model and a directive of how to live. He sent his son as an illustration of God's grace and mercy. An illustration of God's grace and mercy. Yeah, hmm. Do you think Jesus was just a little bit more than that? And now the question is, will we throw open the door of our life and make him a priority? And the, the, the preeminent area, the area that tells more about us than any other, is the area of our finances, because it tends to be the area. See, that's, that's the area that God looks at the closest. I mean, he wants to bless you, but see, he's, he's gonna, he's, it's a diagnostic test. I mean, that he's going to perform on you, and that's going to be the place where he's going to look the closest to see if your heart is ready for him to bless you where we measure and rate our personal security. Now listen to what Jesus said. I'm gonna skip, this is in uh, Matthew chapter six. We have already looked at all of these verses. This is repeat, but I want you to listen to these verses again now with the idea of priority in mind. This, this reflects what Malachi said over 400 years before Jesus said these words, Matthew t- uh, six twenty four. No one, remember this verse, no one can serve two masters. In other words, there's only one, number one. No one can serve two masters. There's only one, number one. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. God says, you know what? Either I'm gonna be number one on the list, or you're gonna be a number one on the list. But he even makes it more specific. You cannot serve both God and money. The competition isn't between God and the devil. The competition is between God and money. God says, look, either you're gonna be at the top of your list as it relates to your personal finances, or I'm gonna be at the top. I'm gonna be at the top and you're gonna be on the bottom, or you're gonna be on the top and I'm gonna be on the bottom. And if you follow this theology uh, then to its logical conclusion, you don't even need to repent or be forgiven. All you gotta do is make sure you make God a priority in your money Boom, you're in, man. I'm going to be at the top. I'm going to be at the top and you're going to be on the bottom or you're going to be on the top and I'm going to be on the bottom. Now, practically speaking, isn't that kind of how it looks sometimes? And yet we want to, many of us want to serve God and we pray and devote and raise both hands or one hand or get the CD and you know we're starting to read our Bibles for the first time, but still there's a sense in which God is number five, but you know, We'd, we'd like him to, to move in our direction. And Jesus says, okay, there, there's, there's a conflict. And for me to be the master and the ruler of your life, you've got to put me first in the arena of your personal finances, not just your prayer life. That's kind of easy. Not just in terms of a little extra time here and there in service. I mean, that's less easy, but that's not the issue. It's God and money. Skip down to verse 31. This is part of the same conversation. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Which let me read that a different way. What shall me eat? Just take the W and turn it upside down. That's the real issue there. What shall me eat? Me, 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 me. I'm worried about number one. That's why I'm number one. What shall we or me drink? That's why I put me at the top of the list because I'm so worried about me. What shall me, we wear? That's why I'm number one. I'm worried about what I'm gonna wear. Jesus says, You're so worried about this stuff. You're so worried about it that you put you at the top of the list and me at the bottom. He's going, look, people who don't even believe in me, 
have that priority list. For the pagans run after all these things. People who don't even believe in God prioritize their life that way. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. And then here's a verse you've heard a thousand times, but this is a verse that is tacked on to the end of a conversation about stuff and money. But seek, what's the word? What's the word? But seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Now this is this isn't me talking, this is Jesus making a promise. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added. Now, what is I mean, Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Uh here's the issue is that that is to be understood how other passages in the scripture define it. The righteousness of God is that the, that which is given to us by faith. Read Philippians chapter 3 where the apostle Paul says that not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law but having you know the righteousness of God that's given by faith, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is what he's talking about there. This isn't about your obedience. This is about the righteousness of faith that we've been reading about in Galatians and Romans. That's not how he's preaching it. This is just pure quid pro quo works righteousness. You do the right thing. God sees that your heart is in the right place, and then he decides he's going to bless you. No faith necessary. None. There is no faith necessary. Just sheer obedience. I want you to seek me first. And he says, if you seek me first, now you have thrown the door wide open, and you have invited me in at the core of your life. And that's not what the text says. Your money, your stuff, your security, your future, your what's going to happen to me. I want you to seek me first in my kingdom and all this other stuff that you prioritize because you were so worried about it, all this other stuff, I'm gonna provide that for you anyway. Seek first my kingdom and all these other things will be given or added to you. Now, I'm just telling you, this isn't about how to get rich. The good news is most of you are already rich, okay? You already eating and living indoors and got money in the bank and you're not worried about what you're gonna eat after church today, okay? You're already rich compared to most people in the world. This isn't about getting rich. This is about reprioritizing and the sense of peace that comes with knowing that God has invaded this area of your life because you have thrown the door wide open. You give, save, pay your taxes, repay your debt, and live on what's left over. Now, here's what's great about the United States of America. If you do this correctly and you do this correctly, what happens to these? Not a trick question. If you do this correctly and you take advantage of some you know, financial tools here, what happens to these? They go up or down? They go down. You gotta love this country. If you do this correctly and do this correctly, these go down. You do it the other way, they keep going up and you go, I don't have any more to save and I don't have any more to give. Now. Let me make this even simpler for you. And here's the system I'd love for you to learn to live with. It's just very simple. It's give, save, live. Give, save, live. Would you say that with me? Give, save, live. One more time. Give, save, live. When you get paid, you invest in God's kingdom first. 
Then when you get paid, you invest in your kingdom second. That's your future. I'm not talking about your 401k. That just disappears. That happens without you making any decisions. You need to save money. You invest in God's kingdom first, your future kingdom later, and decide, you know what? We're gonna live on the rest. Give, save, live on the rest. Give, save, live on the rest. Give, save, live on the rest. This is how you throw open the door to... Do you recall any of the apostles ever giving a financial seminar? And then, you know, using these principles as the thing. Yeah, I don't. Live on the rest. Give, save, live on the rest. Give, save, live on the rest. This is how you throw open the door to God's involvement in your financial future. And I'm telling you, the letters and the stories and the emails, they go on and on and on and on and on. So apparently the letters and the emails and the stories that go on and on and on prove that this is the case rather than an actual clear exposition of God's Word in context. Notice he preached on a text that was obviously supposed to be for Israel. He even pointed out the fact that the promises were for Israel, but then just out of nowhere threw it on us. Oh, this is a principle that's throughout the Scripture, and it's up to you to open the door to God so that he can come in and bless you. Stark, naked, raw, pure, self-righteousness. This is nothing else than that. This is the key to financial success. This is the key to true financial freedom. This is the key to financial peace. It's not about giving money to somebody or to the church. This isn't a ploy. This isn't leverage. As I've said before, if you don't believe me, and if you think this is all about getting more money for the church, I challenge you. I dare you. I'm going to take the excuse away. Don't give it here, but I dare you to make this the priority and you will come back and say, I don't understand it. I can't explain it, but something happened in my heart. Something happened in my family. Something happened in my finances. I, there, I, again, I can't really explain it. On This is like the, uh, the financial equivalent of a morning bo- uh, Mormon burning in your bosom. Prioritize <sighs> your entire financial system. Now, give, save, live on the rest. Give, save, spend. As you think this way, you've got to, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, you've got to think in terms of percentages. You've got to think in terms of percentages. Now, here's what I... You gotta, you gotta... Talked about this a couple weeks ago. You've got to think in terms of percentages. You've got to think in terms of percentages. Now, here's what I, I know about everybody in the room, okay? Two things. Number one, all of you are living on a percentage of your income, right? We're going, Huh? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty insightful of me, huh? All of you are living on a percentage of your income. That's what I know about you. Here's the other thing I know about you. You probably don't know what that is. You probably don't know what that is. You've, never, you've probably never thought about what percentage of my income do I live on? It's, it's just all gone. I think 100%, 100%. <laughs> and if you've got credit card debt, 105%, 110%, you got a car payment. Gee, I think I live on 130% of my income. That's amazing. How do I, I should do a seminar. How to live on 120, okay, here's the deal. All of us live on a percentage of our income. I, I, when you go to this system, I challenge you to figure out what, your, what percentage you live on. You should know that. If you don't, now listen, if you don't choose the percentage of your income you live on, someone else will choose it for you. 
Between your spending habits, your debt, and the United States of America, someone else will choose what percentage of your income you live on. You need to get in control and you need, you need to make that decision. You need to sit down and say, okay, what percentage of my income do I need to live on? Because when you begin thinking percentage is not done. Now, apparently a new form of decision theology. And the decision is you need to decide what percentage of your income you live on. Because that'll show God that you really mean to put him first, I'm telling you. You need to make that decision. You need to sit down and say, okay, what percentage of my income do I need to live on? Because when you begin thinking percentages, not dollars, percentages, and you flip your chart and begin to give first a percentage, save second a percentage, and live on the rest, everything gets clearer and everything begins to make more sense. And it's far easier to plan. Now, Throughout the scripture, throughout the scripture, the the Bible talks in terms of percentages, not dollars. God is not impressed with dollars. In fact, there's a a very cool story in Mark, and um, Jesus is at the temple. You may have heard this story when you're growing up. This is like a famous Bible story they would teach children. Jesus is at the temple with his guys, and they're kind of standing off to the side watching people give money. And they had like a big bucket, way bigger than ours, like a metal bucket. And you could hear the money going in and making all kind of noise and rattling around and clanging in copper coins and silver coins and every once in a while a gold coin. And they're watching these people drop their money in. And shuffling along all by herself is a little widow woman with her head down. She's not making eye contact with anybody. And she reaches up and drops her money. And you'd have to be listening real hard to hear anything hit the bottom of the metal bucket. And as she walks by, Jesus goes, well, hey, guys, 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 did you see that? I'm like, what? You know what? He goes, stop. Lady there, the gray, off of her head, shuffling. They're like, where? Right, right there. She just moved past. Did you see that? And they're like, see what? And he said, that was amazing. And they're like, they're looking at all the royalty and, you know, all the pomp and circumstance of the giving moment, you know, the temple. And Jesus says, that was absolutely incredible. Here's what he said, Mark 12, 43. I think we've got this verse for you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put, what's the word? More, has put more into the treasury than all the others. (laughs) And the guys with Jesus are going, Jesus, I didn't even hear anything go in. I mean, the guy, two guys ahead of her, it was like clank, 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 and they shook it up and it was like everybody clapped. Jesus is going, I'm telling you, that lady, she gave more than all the rest. Now, Jesus, how do you figure she gave more than all the rest? They gave out of their wealth, their extra, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. God, and if you go with the whole Jesus program, Jesus, your savior, looks at percentages, not dollar amounts. That's why you've got to shift your thinking in terms of saving and giving and living in terms of percentage. You need to discover what percentage you live on and then make a decision. You need to put percentages on all those things and adjust everything accordingly. When our kids were growing up, um, you know, this was so important to me because again, I was, I was raised this way, not necessarily in these terms, but it, it just was so helpful to move into adulthood with good financial habits. So when our kids were, in fact, I would say, I was gonna say when they were old enough, I think we started before they were old enough, but that, that was a parenting issue, not a kid issue. I, I wanted them to learn this. So I got all of our kids three jars and I got on the computer and labeled each jar, giving, saving, living. So they each had three jars, one jar is labeled giving, one saving, one living, or spending rather, giving, saving, giving, um, giving, saving, spending, sorry, <laughs> not living. 
And we began to give them their allowance. I know some parents don't believe in allowance and I'm not, that's just what we did, okay? Because I grew up, got an allowance. We'd give them an allowance and we would split it up in, in coins and dollar amounts so that they could think in terms of percentage. And they literally put a percentage in giving, a percentage in saving and the rest in spending. I said, if you do this for the rest of your life, you probably won't ever have financial trouble. If you give first, if you save second, and if you decide I'm gonna live on whatever is left over. And we talked about percentages and then they saw that giving jar would go up and then get emptied, go up and get empty. The, you know, the, the saving jar just goes up, 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 up and the living jar up and down. Then as they got older, we went to an envelope system, did the same thing with envelopes. You give first, you save second, you live on the rest. You give first, you save second, you live on the rest and you think in terms of percentages. And in that way, you prioritize God and others over yourself. And when you prioritize, and if you're a Christian, you know this, if you, when you prioritize. All you got to do is do these things, get those envelopes, do that thing. And then God will see, oh yeah, you know, like Santa Claus, you'll be on the good list rather than the naughty list. And Jesus said, look, if you seek me first, all that other stuff you're worried about, look, I know that you need that. I know that you need that. I'm not glorified and honored if you go hungry. I'm not honored if you don't have the right thing to wear. There's nothing honoring about poverty for poverty's sake. I know that you need those things, but I want you to live in a way that throws open the door, invites me in. I'm not fifth on the list, but you're always you know, asking for stuff. I want to be first and it is not about money. It is all about priorities. It's all about making me first in your life. Now, I want you to go home and think that way. I want you to go home and have a conversation. I want you to go home and, you know, get out quicken or whatever it is that you use to do your finances. And I want you to, and this is, this will be kind of difficult and figure out what would it look like to give first, to save second and to live on the rest. And here's what'll happen. You may not be able to live the lifestyle you're currently living. That's okay, because the lifestyle you're currently living for many of us, it's killing you. It is so stressful. You got stuff you don't even want anymore. And if you will begin working toward give, save, live, give, save, live, God's kingdom first, God and others first, my future kingdom later, and then I'm gonna spend whatever's left over, live on whatever's left over. Something will, I'm telling you, it will begin to happen in your heart. And if you don't trust me, don't give it here, but I challenge you. So the change in your heart occurs basically when you make the decision to apply these financial principles And yet he didn't even demonstrate clearly that these were truly principles that apply to any of us as Christians. And this is all stark, naked obedience, quid pro quo. The God who wants to help you but can't because you won't do what you need to do. I'm telling you, it will begin to happen in your heart. And if you don't trust me, don't give it here. But I challenge you to flip your list, flip your list, flip your list and give, put God and others first, put your future second, and then adjust your lifestyle so that you live on the rest. This will impact every single arena of your financial life. Now, listen, can you, you probably can't, can you even imagine what would happen if all of us did this? Can you imagine, I, I, yesterday I, I was sitting around and thinking about today and I thought, imagine if all three of our campuses, if all three of our campuses did this, 
In fact, I sat down and I figured out if we just all got out of credit card debt, keep your ridiculous car, you know, if you want, and your mortgage, can't do much about that right now. But if we just decided we're gonna get out of credit card debt, the average American household, not individual household, spends about $1,500 a year in interest, credit card interest, about $1,500. Listen, if just our three campuses, and I, this is a concern. I mean, imagine how better the world would be. I mean, it would be so much more Christ-like if, if we didn't pay all that much in credit card interest. <gasps> About $30 million. Imagine what we could do with $30 million extra dollars in our community, in our country, in our world. $30 million. We, not all the other churches, not all the Christians in the state of Georgia, just us. $30 million would be freed up for kingdom work if we would just do this. If freed up for kingdom work? I haven't heard anything, anything that even remotely sounds closely like the message that Jesus preached regarding the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. I'm hearing, hey, just make sure that you, uh, you know, you get your financial priorities straight. You know, use the envelope system and God will look down from heaven and go, oh, oh, that one is obeying me. Now I can finally bless them. No faith in Jesus required. No repentance in the forgiveness of your sins required. Just the proper application of the proper discovered principle that uh, Andy Stanley discovered million dollars would be freed up for kingdom work if we would just do this, be more responsible with the way we manage our credit cards, decide we're gonna put God first. And I'm telling you, when this is number one, something happens here. When this is number one, you see this differently. When this is number one, you go to Dillard's instead of some other places. When, when this is number one, when this is number one, those decisions, those decisions are just easier to make. 30 million dollars, maybe more, we are spending in credit card interest. I'm not against using credit cards. I'm off, I'm glad those, those institutions exist. They're wonderful. They help us do things and do things quicker. I just don't want you paying more for stuff than it's worth. And you don't want that either. So imagine what would happen. It's not just about you. It's about our Christian community and our churches. It's about the Christian community in this country at a time when things are so difficult and so upside down. What if we led the way and said, you know what? We've made our minds up. We are not gonna be slaves of bad financial decisions anymore. Right. Imagine how many people would be saved if we just did that. My family's not gonna be a slave. This isn't gonna be the legacy I pass on to my kids or grandkids. And how many people are gonna go to heaven as a result of this decision? Yeah, probably zero. I am flipping the list. I'm gonna put God and others first. I'm gonna put my future second. I'm gonna put me last. I'm gonna invite God in to do whatever he wants to in the realm of my personal finances. Imagine if we did that, what could happen in our communities? what it would look like. You say, Andy, this is the worst time in my financial history to be... T I mean, imagine what a difference it would make to his church if he actually opened up the Bible and actually preached from it for real and pointed them to Christ and him crucified for our sins and talked about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and how even our sanctification flows from that free gift of justification given to us by Christ. Yeah, imagine what a difference it would make. What could happen in our communities? what it would look like. You say, Andy, this is the worst time in my financial history to be talking about this. Of course it is, but you know what? 
Finally, God has our undivided attention, right? Did you know church attendance all over America is up and giving is down? You know why? Because all of a sudden, even though our list is completely upside down, we're not shy about asking God for help, even though we've done nothing on his behalf, right? I mean, we have no problem saying, God, I'm inviting you in, I'm inviting you in. And if the scripture is correct, and I'm all for Old and New Testament, God says, okay, I'd like to come in. I'd like to get involved. Maybe I'd like to get involved in the United States of America. But you're going to have to flip your list. I'd like to, but you're going to have to. A quid pro quo. This is quite a, I don't like this deity that he's describing. You, you trust you, you take care of you. So here's my question. Would you be willing to go home and wrestle through what's happening in your realm of personal finances and work your way to this? I know this isn't a quick decision. I know this isn't an easy decision, but you can work your way there. And if you do. You can work This is all self-works righteousness, right on. If you do, if you do, you will be seeking first the kingdom of God in the most difficult area. No, you won't. And work your way to this. I know this isn't a quick decision. Because obedience, sheer naked obedience is not what it means to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Because the way you're defining it, the way you're using it, it's seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, which then God will go, oh, yes, I like that, and then bless you with it. Decision. I know this isn't an easy decision, but you can work your way there. And if you do, if you do, if you do, you will be seeking first the kingdom of God in the most difficult area of all to seek first the kingdom of God. And if you seek first the kingdom of God in this area, all those other things will be added unto you. And that's not what the text teaches. Have a better story. And ultimately, you will have a richer life because you can lay in bed at night and know that your heavenly father is looking after and taking care of you. No, he's not. He's not taking care of me at all. I'm taking care of me by making sure that I do my part so that then God will bless me. Because God won't do it unless I do my part. God's not taking care of me at all. I'm taking care of me. Keep an eye on where the money's going. Make up your mind to honor God. Make whatever course corrections and corrections you need to make. Flip your list. Give. Save. And then let's all just live on the rest. This time, we want to give you a couple of minutes just to think about what you've heard. Think about what you've heard throughout the series. I'm gonna invite the band to come out. I just want you to spend a few minutes and just reflect, listen to this song. And then as you leave here more than ever before, I pray that you will leave here and do something with what you've heard. Would you pray with me, please? No, I'm not praying with you. So there you have it. Probably one of the worst sermons I've ever heard on money, ever. Christians give out of thanksgiving, out of a joyful heart. God loves a cheerful giver. Nothing cheerful about giving there. I mean, I've got to watch out for myself. And the way I watch out for myself is make sure to do the right things that God wants me to do so that then God will bless me. Because if I don't, he won't. So in order to look out for me, number one, I've got to do the things that I've got to do in order to make sure that God will bless me. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins. And this turns God into some kind of a sick, 
sadistic deity that stands on the sidelines going, nope, you haven't done what's necessary to please me yet. Try harder. No, oh, I, I see that you're struggling, but you know, that's all your that's all your fault. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense in the real world, because then how is it that you you know I mean if this principle were actually really true the way he's describing it, then why is it that Hugh Hefner lives in a mansion? I mean, seriously? I mean, the last time I checked, Hugh Hefner is not a Christian. And that he's not practicing the principle of tithing at all. And yet he lives in a very, very large mansion. He's made quite a bit of money off of um, sin. How is it that God has blessed him, uh, you know, but not the other people? Hmm? Yeah, no, this isn't Christian theology. This is works righteousness. This isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. This isn't even, and this is not the sanctification that flows from the fact that you're a new creation in Christ. And you don't even need to believe and trust in Jesus for this. All you've got to do is do the right thing, and boom, God will bless you. Apparently, God's been blessing Hugh Hefner. And then, you know, you just go back to Jesus' teaching regarding the rich man and Lazarus. Over and over and over again, when I hear sermons like this, I can't make the Bible, the rest of the Bible, even begin to make sense. How is it, okay, how is it that when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, the the rich man doesn't have a name, but he's wealthy. He dresses in the finest clothes, and he's got, he eats the choicest foods, and just lives in a great place, and boy, he sure is having a blessed life, right? And then you got old Lazarus. I mean, he's he's uh, crippled. He's sick. He's got sores on his body. He's poor and has to beg for help, and they they, they put him, at, you know, at the you know, right near the rich man's house, right? Such a pathetic creature, obviously cursed of God, right? And then they both die and blammo, you see things for what they really were. That poor dude who had nothing, who was so sick and had all these sores on his body that were oozing and pussing, the dogs came by and licked his wounds. That was the guy who actually had faith in Christ. While the uh, the one who looked blessed, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, in the context, the story is told there, uh, you know, that uh, he, he, you know, he calls out to Abraham, send Lazarus to my brother so that they don't come here. And, and Abraham says to him, well, they have Moses and the prophets. No, 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 no. See, the context here is of a religious person in Israel. I'm sure he tithed. I'm sure he did his good things. I'm sure that he did all those Things, right? But he didn't have faith. And he ends up in hell. Yep, when you hear a sermon like this, stories like that don't make any sense because God blesses out of pure mercy and fatherly kindness. When you take the Mosaic law and its and it, it its demands are this, if you do this, then God will do that. You have to understand how to properly understand the law. And the way you learn that is by going into Romans and Galatians that makes it clear what the purpose of the law was in the first place. Because you who want to be justified by the law, you who want to be blessed by the law, you are under a curse because cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the law. The raw, the law is not done piecemeal. It's not graded on the curve. 
and yet I heard nothing about what Christ done, has done for us. And even Jesus' quotes, how he was quoted, it was all turned into a quid pro quo, and he doesn't even understand what Jesus means when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his, God's righteousness. Because, you see, that's all part and parcel of the gift that's given to us in our salvation. God clothes us in robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is the righteousness achieved and won by Jesus Christ and his perfect life and sinless life under the Mosaic law, and it's given to you as a gift. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The way Andy Stanley just preached it, it's seek first, well, your righteousness, and then God will bless you. That's not what Jesus was meaning there in the Sermon on the Mount, because he chastised the people listening to him and said, Oh, you of little faith. Go and look it up. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>